What is happening, you beautiful bastards? Welcome back to another week. This week's guest is Kate Wulinga. Kate is a forensic psychologist, and we have a fantastic conversation with her, ranging from it's amazing to talk to serial killers to all sorts of other crap. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was a wild time. I think you guys are gonna like it. And uh, kind of the a summary of what she does is she is, as Grizz stated, a forensic psychologist, uh, but she's not profiling what she did was uh, when you hear about someone who has to go to jail and they plead insanity or they're just really messed up people they have to go to a court appointed psychologists to be evaluated to see if they're fit to stand trial so a lot of what she was doing was evaluating these people who uh, violently killed people uh, just tried to plead insanity even though they were perfectly sane and knew I exactly say there was a lot doing. of the figuring out if people were bullshitting or not and she knew 90 percent of the time yeah apparently it's pretty obvious if you're not crazy and you try to pretend you are uh but we actually go all over the place from what she saw while she was uh on that side of the fence interviewing these these people who were pretty messed up to uh her own journey with uh interesting mental health circumstances uh but i'll uh, let you guys listen to that and see what you think of it What is happening, you beautiful bastards? Yeah, who are you? <laughs> What's your name? I just had a stroke. Make it up, you know. I, <laughs> I was going to say, it could be anything right now. <laughs> so anyways, you do forensic psychology, correct? Yes, I'm on disability now, mm -hmm. as we discussed before, I have a whole lot of medical stuff and I kind of kept falling, metaphorically falling down and picking myself back up again. And then in 2014, I literally fell and broke my back and oh, that was the limit. That was where I couldn't because to do forensic psychology, to do crisis work, which is what I did, mm. uh, you need to be pretty mobile. How did you break your back? It just fell? I have a autoimmune disorder, which is at the oh. heart of a lot of my health stuff. And it's called ankylosing spondylitis, which is a fancy name for my body thinks I need a second spine. Okay. So <laughs> it starts from the tailbone and works its way up and it fuses. Weird. Is there a fix for that? No. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what are you going to do? Remove the other one? Like, <laughs> right? You know, it's it's a you know the people who you see you know elders who walk at a four at a ninety degree angle permanently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That mm -hmm. usually is is what you should picture the people who cannot stand up straight anymore. That's what yeah. I have. Um, I could take immunosuppressants, which would maybe delay progression, but there's nothing so far that will treat it and i yeah. have four children which means a lot of germs yeah, yeah. House, so i'm not going to get on an immunosuppressant like that's not a smart thing yeah no kids do. are bad enough as it is kids just suck like <laughs> it's true yeah, we've, we've talked about so, immuno, yeah. immuno stuff before because i also have an autoimmune disorder or disease yep. i don't even know what to call it anymore i have a different set of symptoms because as you probably know people with autoimmune issues can go anyway any direction <laughs> Uh, I won't take and anything that suppresses my immune system either. It's just a terrible plan. 
it's, you know, if I lived maybe alone with someone who was able to avoid a special exposure to a lot of other germs, you know, even before COVID, exposure mm -hmm. to a lot of germs and ailments, then mm -hmm. maybe. But my husband is a college professor, which means he deliberately goes out in the world and exposes not exposes himself. Let me reword that. He, nope. It's already been said. It's been said. That's fine. It's, you know, it was going to come out eventually, as it were. True. <laughs> and um, he's deliberately around people who are potentially germ-ridden. Mm -hmm. We live in Boston, which... Oh, you're not even that far from us. <laughs> you know, Boston is yeah. inherently germ-ridden. I love it. And with four kids as well, it's just there's no possible way no to, not at all to really limit my exposure to things and so the answer instead is i'm gonna stay home and yeah. i'm not gonna take immunosuppressants and i cannot get the flu vaccine but i could get covid so covid vaccine so that's good how did uh, um, the covid vaccine go for you because when i got the second shot uh you know when they tell you the second shot it's a 14 day period before you're fully fully vaccinated afterwards I was sick the entire 14 days. <laughs> it's true. The first vaccine, I spent maybe a week thinking I was about to die. Mm. And then I spent the second week hoping that I was about <laughs> oh, to God. die because I was so sick. I was so miserable. And being, I was in among the first wave yeah. that was approved. And mm -hmm. so we were still on lockdown and so it was pretty easy to just close my door and growl anytime somebody opened <laughs> the door and that was fine the second vaccine really nothing really fine hmm. and the booster was fine hmm. I, I haven't gotten the booster i actually it's unclear for me i don't even know what i'm supposed to do with that i should probably take better care of myself but i think they're saying you need to get it now <laughs> now uh, they're I'm just not, saying go get it i'm not looking forward to it i probably should though <laughs> but uh anyway um, what is forensic psychology for people who think it's just a mentalist? It kind of is, I guess it's really just, and I use just in visual quotes, but it's for psychology that has to do with the criminal justice system. Okay. So sometimes I worked inside a prison after somebody had already gone through the whole process and been convicted and everything. And I would do check-ins, intakes. I would do crisis evaluations, uh, whatever. Now, like, for, so once they've made it into prison, what, what would a forensic fight is forensic psychologists do because if they're already in prison well i guess they, they're not they might not be actually like um drawing a blank here i can't even speak maybe i'm having a stroke it's um, possible. <laughs> we've all been there <laughs> um they might not be charged with it yet right so you know if you're in prison you're... you've already been charged and convicted jail is pre-conviction prison is post-conviction ah, okay and so I, was thinking I, about like... I would occasionally go into jails to see somebody. So, okay, it, when I worked in the prison, that was more sort of maintenance. Mm. That was doing the rounds, checking in on people. If somebody seemed like they were having a manic episode or a psychotic break, then I would kind of 
help figure out like, what do we do here? What's mm -hmm. this? What's going down? And as well, I did the intakes for everybody new that came into the prison because mm. sometimes you can scoop them up quickly enough to talk to them before they realize that they should tell everybody that they have ADHD so that they can get speed. Mm. Oh, yeah. Interesting. <laughs> because Adderall has very high street value, including on the rec yard. Yeah. So now, we tried to scoop them up and, and get them to admit to us that they've never been diagnosed with ADHD before having oh, yeah. time to yeah. talk to their cellmates. So that was the prison. And I would also do, if you have been diagnosed with something fairly major in prison, then every so often, one, three, five years, depends on the person, you have to be reevaluated. Mm to make sure that your symptoms are fairly stable and your meds are basically working or that you're adequately cheeking your pills and selling them to your cellmates. Like <laughs> that's kind of beyond yeah. my role. I also did uh, forensic assessments, which is before they are convicted. That's to figure out competency to stand trial. Mm -hmm. It's to figure out what your diagnosis might be. And it's to offer my opinion about what should happen next now, where should they be housed going into prison for you was that like kid in the candy store or is that like a nightmare as far as like seeing all the different you know mental neither, health neither really? i mean i saw i felt more respected working in the prison than i have it literally any other job i've ever had is that respected cool. by like uh i guess what your patients is that what you mean or just in general? Uh, clients, yeah, the inmates. Um, okay. But also my coworkers and everything. Because okay. It was a state prison for men. And they know that you don't touch staff. Mm -hmm. mm. That within prison, there's its own court, sort of, that happens. Mm -hmm. yeah. like there are, there are a, an, an extra run. You can get years added onto your prison sentence for spitting at somebody. Mm. That kind of thing. So you don't staff especially women and so i got a lot of super polite people plus <laughs> there was no benefit to them to yeah. mess with me so that was fine um i also worked in locked psychiatric facilities around massachusetts and mm. that was fascinating fascinating how sometimes hilarious and sometimes dark and sometimes mm. pathetic yeah and pathetic in what care they get well yeah and it, like there was I, one guy in particular comes to mind who had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia had been in the system the system either mental health system or criminal justice or sometimes both for i mean probably 30 years by that point mm. i cannot imagine he's still alive now yeah and so this was 20 years ago and he, he basically spent his entire adult life in the system. And the assumption was, and I was never able to really parse out why, but the assumption was this is an adult male with early onset schizophrenia. Turns out he was deaf. That was the situation <laughs> wow. the whole time? <laughs> yes. But the problem is some of the older generation schizophrenic meds mm -hmm. create symptoms it's a network of symptoms the fancy name is tardive dyskinesia it's 
facial expressions, its tendency to drool or what we call a tongue thrust, which is a lot less sexy than you think it is. <laughs> and um, an inability to show or even experience emotion. Mm. It, there's like this whole network of it. And once you get tardive dyskinesia from having been on these meds, you have it. Oh, They're really? just now coming out with some drugs that they think maybe might help. But they're not really sure. So here, take another pill. Why not? Mm. That's brutal. So this guy has tardive, tard dyskinesia. He can't experience emotion. He can't communicate. And also he's deaf and nobody ever taught him how to sign or even explained to him what hearing means. For 30 years. That's brutal. Yeah. <laughs> and I know, I know a lot, especially years ago. The treatment in those places is not amazing. Um, you know, so many people get thrown in there not knowing what the hell is going on. Either they're autistic or whatever. And it's just, you know, it's a shit show. <laughs> Have you heard of the movie The Titicut Follies? No. No. It's horrifying and fascinating and amazing. And I feel like it should be required watching, especially... Mm. If you live in any place where they still have a state psychiatric facility, mm -hmm. which Massachusetts, so the state of Massachusetts had this terrible, terrible reputation. This is in the seventies for mm -hmm. mistreating their patients in their hospitals. So they hired this guy named Frederick Wiseman, who was a pretty noted documentarian. And they said, we'll give you a year and a camera, spend your time in Bridgewater state hospital, which is South of the city. It's where they kept Albert DeSalvo for instance, the guy who was technically called the Boston Strangler, even though yeah. that's a whole other <laughs> sideline for me. Um, but I mean, it's it's a, it's both a psych hospital and a prison mm -hmm. at, at the same time. And they were like, just film what's going on and come up with effectively a, like a promotional documentary for us. And he Which was is interesting. Like, no problem. And what he created proved that the conditions inside that hospital were worse than every anybody ever imagined so it backfired on them it backfired hardcore <laughs> and the state of massachusetts succeeded in suppressing that documentary for a solid 20 to 30 years it wasn't until approximately 2000 2005 that it became available to the public and now if you have connections with google and youtube for instance you can find it Mm. out there and it's disturbing and upsetting and you're like oh this is the good the good version no less like <laughs> he was what? trying to make this happy <laughs> that right? stuff right there is like uh, that's that's the kind of thing that comes to mind when i think about uh psychology in the 70s like it's just oh yeah every, I, it's nothing but horror stories that i hear about it well, when I hear that, I don't think just Massachusetts. I think everywhere. It's just Massachusetts got caught for it. And they were stupid and made a fucking <laughs> yeah, made a documentary real. about for it. <laughs> hey, we're getting blamed for some shit. Go film. <laughs> Go film. Prove we're not so bad. And this guy was smart enough Wait to have minute. them sign a release of information like, whatever I film, you have to let me use. And they were like, it's fine. We're fine. It's fine. Oh, my God. It's not fine. <laughs> and that, that makes me wonder if they legitimately thought they were not doing anything wrong. They had probably to. the person who hired him thought they were not doing anything wrong. Mm. And the people, you know, the mental health aides or even the psychologists were like, mm, don't do that thing. That thing that well, you're I also do wonder, a bad idea. But by then it's too late. 
when you're working on something like that, when you're doing the stuff daily and stuff, you look at it you're like, oh, that's not that big of a deal. But people who don't see that on a daily basis are like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> What'd <real>. you do? <laughs> you, know? now, you, you had mentioned a couple minutes ago uh, the people in prison, I think it was, that are faking ADHD to get Adderall, right? It's a good time. Yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> That's that's another topic, but uh, Grizz and I have actually disagreed on this quite a bit. Uh, I don't know the full scope of his view. Um, what do you think about ADHD? Because I don't think Grizz thinks it's complete nonsense, but I don't think I don't think he's. I don't think it's nonsense. I, I, to get technical, yeah, it's a fucking nightmare. Okay, <laughs> and I can say this because I started off my career running a learning disabilities ADHD assessment clinic in New Hampshire. And it was basically for rich kids, because mm. if your kid is in the public school system, the public school system will do the assessment. But if your kid goes to a private school, and we were fairly close to a pretty well-named private school, then you have to get someone else, someone private mm. to do mm -hmm. that assessment. And turns out if you go to most graduate programs, the doctoral students are chomping at the bit to do the assessments and it's significantly cheaper than going hmm. to somebody who already has a private practice. And so I ran that and I oversaw that. And I used to say things, I used to explain things to parents a certain way and explain things to kids. And I had sort of, I don't want to say a patter, but kind of a patter, you know, mm -hmm. and nobody ever came back and yelled at me. So I was like, cool, <laughs> guess I'm doing something right. And two of my children have adhd and so i've watched that and been like yeah it all tracks mm -hmm. it's pretty difficult but these poor kids have a psychologist for a mother and an educator for a father so mm -hmm. they're stuck mm -hmm. like we're not gonna let them you know pretend this is not a thing and then when i was in my late 30s i developed epilepsy out of the blue nobody knows why i'm just super lucky this way yeah <laughs> obviously <laughs> clearly and the lesion that that the epilepsy the seizure created is in my right frontal lobe which is where executive functioning happens in the brain and executive functioning is your ability to form a plan follow it through and then assess how well it went which is basically what ADHD is about, but that's also what OCD is about and schizophrenia and several other, there are, there are a whole bunch of yeah, they're all disorders that, that kind of sit right there. And so I went from running a learning disabilities, ADHD clinic to having it. Mm. I now have ADHD and because this is cool, since ADHD medications lower your seizure threshold, I can't take them. Ah. So that which caused me to have ADHD now prevents me from taking the medications for it. Fun. I'm super fun. <laughs> My, I That's believe that ADHD is a thing, Jerry. Yeah, um, I know. So we've, we've talked about it before, Grizz, and I brought it up because uh, it's not that you don't think it exists. It's I think that we disagreed on things like the scope because I have diagnosed ADHD. I don't take anything for it as I'm afraid to, but ADHD, I don't question too much. I think, um, I think ADD is, is, there's no difference. Uh, 
is from what there's, from what I hear. So you, there, you can there tell me. There used to no, be. There used yeah. to be ADD hyperactive type and mm -hmm. ADD inattentive type. But yeah. since the 90s, they've all been ADHD, all attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. So when we that. were kids and they, and they were going nuts on it and they had the two splits, it seemed yeah. like they were just throwing ADD at everyone. <laughs> and it was like, like they tell me I have ADD. No, I was They bored. told my husband he has ADHD. I was like, bullshit. <laughs> that man is organized and That's, so I'm organized focused. as fuck. What, but the problem it was, kills me. I, when, I was in, when I was in school, I didn't want to pay attention to what they were saying. My teachers were boring. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so there's, and that's a whole nother thing. But to me, how many people are like me who get lumped into that? Yeah. Because they were bored or their teachers. I don't, I'm not, I don't want to blame teachers, but they don't get paid well. Like it's hard for them to get enthusiastic about what they're doing so often and so much when they're dealing with kids and everything, all that bullshit. But so for me, I was just bored out of my mind. Mm. You know what I mean? If there was a class I wanted to pay attention to, I did great. <laughs> Well, you know, what's interesting about ADHD is if there's a class you want to pay attention to, you can still do great. Uh, mm -hmm. Like one of the things that I struggle with, like on a daily basis is audio processing. I don't really understand the whole situation, but like if I'm at a drive through with my wife and she tells me her order, I cannot repeat it. Really? Yeah. Well, she'll say it like three times and I'll say, all right, it's this, this, and this. Got it. Turn to the window and say it completely wrong. <laughs> I can't stop I, it. I, in fact, lean back and make my husband shout over me. Well, if, if, going through a drive if my stress, if my stress threshold is too high, that's what I'll have her do. But I, I, I literally can't repeat just... it. I was actually just the other day. I was so proud of myself. I ordered it. My wife didn't correct me. I was like, oh, you see that? I got your order. She said, you said it wrong. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I actually um, I don't drink Starbucks, but my wife loves to drink Starbucks. So whenever we go there, I make her order because it's way too complicated. <laughs> I can speak fine and I can hear what she says. It's just, nope, you can order that thing. I just, it just you just do it. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I was just curious what your thought on it was because now, uh, from what I see, like I follow like ADHD forums and stuff, and some people go on there and be like, I think I have it. And then they, everyone says, you have to go to the doctor and get assessed, which of course that makes sense. But then I wonder, like, what does that involve? Can you even fake that if people are doing it in prison? How do you fake that? Well, that's the thing. People try to fake it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But there are, like, it's not just a survey. It's not just right. a, you know, whatever it is, BuzzFeed or whatever survey on, you know, if you have these symptoms, you might have, like, that's fine as a place to start. And mm -hmm. it's entirely fine and encouraged to go to your, whether it's your primary care doctor or psychologist and say, this is what I think I have. But then you need to let them do the diagnosing because mm -hmm. the thing about diagnosing yourself is that you sit inside your own head almost all the time. <laughs> and so you lose perspective on yeah. how you compare to the general population and self-diagnosis is not really reliable to begin with and especially not if you want to take meds and so like my adhd thing is that this happened so it was 2016 that i, would, I developed epilepsy and in the next four to six months I was finding some of what you're saying, the, the auditory processing, I couldn't, mm -hmm. and I was having weird memory lapses and 
forgetting to do things that I normally would do. And then I would hyper fixate on other things that I normally could let go of. And just, there was a personality shift there. And because I have a background in psychology, I decided I'm going to self-diagnose. And I think that I have early onset Alzheimer's. Yeah, that's a bit. And did that work for you? A lot of that fit. A yeah, lot of yeah. the, you know, the, the memory issues and the anxiety and the sort of the sundowner tendency of the symptoms getting worse after dark. And so I went into my neurologist and I'm a mess and I think I have this thing. And he's like, all right, well, let's start with having you assessed. We have a neuropsychologist right here in the office. We have a clinical psychologist right here in the office. Let's start. You sit and you talk with them. And some of it's a talking interview and some of it's tests. Some of it is self-report stuff, but there are also actual tests, mm -hmm. intelligence tests, card sort tests, the raw shock, things like that actually help figure out whether you have it. And I don't mean the raw shock in the Freudian, you know, I'm going to determine what your sex life is like based on what mm. you see here. It's a whole different way of using the test, but it's been sort of more scientifically backed. Yeah. Yeah. Than that. And so I went through all of the testing and toward the end, the psychologist was like, I'm going to have to take a couple of weeks to write this up, but I can tell you, you diagnose this right now if you want. And now I'm sitting there like rocking in the office. <laughs> chair, like, I don't. I think I've, I think I hear my mom calling, I gotta go, you know, <laughs> okay, fine. What do you, what is it? And I'm braced. I'm ready because I have, there's a history of Parkinson's in my family. And I was like, I'm terrified that it's going to be some sort of neurological, whatever. Plus, you know, epilepsy, scary. Yeah. Mm. And he's like, you have ADHD. And my experience with a lot of diagnoses, if you're giving them or receiving them, is that it goes through sort of the stages of grief mm -hmm. with stage one being bullshit. <laughs> yep. And and I'm driving home and I'm like, I don't have that. That's not wait. Oh shit, I do. I have that <laughs> symptom and I have this symptom and I had son of a bitch. <laughs> I hate it when somebody else is right. <laughs> I thought it was right so much. I actually, uh, I, I don't know what it would be like to go through life not having it and then having it. Just the way that I think is just the way I've always thought. But uh, like, I don't go to the doctor now for it because uh, I, I can't remember the symptoms enough to talk about them. I'd have to write them down. And then that gives me reservations. Like if I wrote them down, that looks like I made like a checklist that I have to make sure I hit. And then I just go down the rabbit hole, get distracted and never even make, never even make an appointment. So yeah you well and talking on the that? phone is the worst oh i hate talking on the phone i actually don't <laughs> mind talking on the phone but i will like i can't focus after a couple minutes and people will notice that i'm not actually saying anything anymore and i don't even realize it it's uh it's not a fun time but it's, i do appreciate fun. i do appreciate the non-linear thought process <laughs> uh i'm very good at connecting things that wouldn't normally be i'm just not good at remembering them that's it there's other things, well, that's, but that's like the big, that's, big part of it. You know, that's why podcasting has been ideal for me. And that's why mm -hmm. I started my podcast thinking that it was going to be very forensic psychology. Mm -hmm. I was going to be very luxury, sort of. I used to teach. And so I was going to do that and explain 
that forensic psychology is not like profiling and here's what it is like and here's what schizophrenia is not like and here's what it is like and things like that like that's mm. what i thought and i'd hit 10 episodes and i'd burn out and be done 370 episodes later i've changed my approach because i realized what i'm best at is connecting with people mm -hmm. and following a conversation and letting it go where it goes. And that means letting go of a plan of a script or a structure yep. and just yeah. being like, let's, let's see what happens. And apparently my gift is asking people questions. They didn't think I was going to ask. And so I try to warn them <laughs> of that before we actually record, like, look, you can tell me, no, yeah, you're not, you're not promising anything here. So. Uh we we've had to start with like, hey, is anything off limits? And even then, I'll push the buttons and I'll I'll come around anyways. I don't know if that's a dick thing or not, but it happens. <laughs> but before we move on to actual forensic psychology, how do you feel about having ADHD now when you didn't before? What's that transition like? It's a lot at first because I have a pretty good poker face, mm -hmm. and so. I still look the same and I don't appear distressed to my loved ones. And so there was probably a year's time frame where my husband or people who knew me since childhood or whatever would assume that I felt the same because I looked the same. Mm. And it took a lot of being able to identify how I'm different, which means being able to remember how I used to be and now... Mm -hmm describing how I am now and talking through, like I have to describe all of my symptoms in minute detail to help my family better understand who and what I am now, instead mm. of constantly trying to be who I used to be. Mm. Which, so I mean, it was, it was rough. You're in a unique situation where you can do that. There's so many people out there who couldn't do that. And that, I mean, families fall apart for things like that. Yeah where it's yeah. just I, uh, I know a lot changed. of people that have it they can't even keep a job so I'm fortunate in that oh, yeah. respect uh I, don't, I, I can't remember what it's called there's a name for it but uh I think it might be masking where you appear 100 percent normal uh mm -hmm. I think oh that, I don't appear normal like let's not go that far <laughs> well like what if you're normal? out in like like if we were at a meeting or whatever which Grizz and I have done meetings together before because we used to work together uh I would be surprised if anyone even it crossed their mind that I have that because I just I'm used to masking because it doesn't benefit me to have it out in the workforce. So I just try not to, um, yeah, it's just, I thought that was interesting. I just wanted to get your take on that because uh, I've never met anyone that didn't have it and then had it. It's, it's a rough, it's a rough go. And now I feel like I've kind of hit a new normal and I yeah. let myself be, and there's still days where I have to articulate something to my husband about, for instance, physical touch feels different to me. Like I, I don't like jump scares and I don't like to be, mm -hmm. which I mean, I have four kids. So like the unexpected hug, mm -hmm. I don't like that. And <laughs> I've had to teach my kids a lot about consent, yeah, which ultimately might hopefully keep them out of prison, but <laughs> It's yeah. been this whole process where, it, you know, moms are sort of used to saying, like, we put our kids needs first. Mm. These moms are great. And I've never been I've always been kind of an asshole anyway. So <laughs> there's that. But, you know, sort of really 
there are some days where I really have to explain to my husband, like, here's where I'm at today. Yeah. And I cannot make this phone call. I need you to make this phone call. I don't know why it's bothering me, but I can't do it and it needs to be made. Mm. And luckily he's a pretty good guy. So he does the thing and that's cool. And I've also been delighted to learn that none of the things that I used to say to children and their parents when I was running the clinic is coming back to haunt me. Mm -hmm. That's cool. (laughs) So big relief. Let me tell you. Yeah. Now doing the forensic psychologist stuff, what is what do you come across the most is it adhd is it schizophrenia i mean a tremendous amount of normal yeah like anybody could end up in prison oh absolutely it's 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 a it's a conglomeration of the wrong mood and the wrong you know the misunderstanding and the wrong set of experiences like the vast majority of people who are in prison did not wake up that morning and think i'm going to do a thing today yeah Mm -hmm. wrong place wrong time it's just i mean literally shit happens and so the vast majority of people who are in prison don't need to be on meds don't need a diagnosis that sort of thing and a lot of my job on the pre-prison side of things on the assessment side felt not pointless because somebody has to do it mm-hmm. but you or your kid or arguably your dog could adequately be a forensic assessor under many circumstances <laughs> not because <my> <laughs> for instance the figuring out whether somebody is competent to stand trial in order to do that you need to be able to communicate with your lawyer. That doesn't mean you do. It just means that you're able to. Yep. Okay. You need to be able to differentiate right from wrong or understand that what you did broke rules. Again, doesn't mean you never break the rules. It just means that you know rules yeah. are a thing. And you need to basically understand the court process the roles of who the judge is, who your lawyer is, what the gallery is. You need to know that you're not supposed to jump up on the defense table in the middle of trial and take a shit, for instance. Like, these are important things. That's a pretty low bar. It is. I gotta imagine there were still periods where that might be difficult, though. And, well, not, no, for the most part, like, you know. Like, the reason a lot of people are not found not guilty by reason of insanity is because they never even go to trial in the first place. Mm. So if someone is found NGRI, not guilty by reason of insanity, then usually they're sort of on a borderline or they're good at masking or they're real good at faking. But hopefully I'm better at figuring (laughs) out when you are. Now, did you run across any where you were later on, you were like that person was masking or they they were faking it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, my only job then is to share my my opinion in the court because I was a I was an employee of the state. I was not hired by Mm -hmm. either the prosecution or the defense. Some states have that. And as well, there are private practitioners who can be hired and that's fine. Like there's nothing wrong with that. It's like having an expert witness of any other kind. Mm. But my job was for the state. And so I wasn't asked to reach a conclusion or spin a conclusion. Mm. Yeah, you I were was just, just asked, what's party. your opinion? Yeah. What's their what's their diagnosis? Are they competent? And what do you think should happen next? 
Interesting. Now, when they say, what do you think should happen next? Does that mean like, should they stand trial? Is that what they're asking you? Sometimes should they stand trial or if found guilty, should they go to prison or a psychiatric facility? Oh, right. um, should they be now? I also did not prescribe. Mm -hmm. I opted not to pursue that option. Although I think if I had remained in the field, I eventually would have gotten at least like my NP or something to become a nurse practitioner because mm -hmm. it holds more weight. If I look at you and say, I don't think you need meds when I can prescribe for you. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Right. Is, yeah. Whereas if, if I say, I don't think you need meds and I can't prescribe for you anyway, that means nothing. But still, if I think that somebody would benefit from medication or a, a medication evaluation, then I would refer them accordingly. It's my belief that we're kind of getting, as a society, we're kind of going away from meds a little bit I to a degree. So. Um, I was going to say, do you feel that same way when you were last doing the psychology stuff or was it still charging strong? It was still charging. It depended on at what point you were coming in to the process. Um, when I was doing reevaluations or yeah, you know, just sort of double checking in, how are you doing? Double checking, you know. Sometimes a diagnosis might be in question, and so I would be asked to treat it as though they'd never been diagnosed before and see if my findings matched prior findings i know so and, many people who took this stuff and they'd be they'd either be zombies or it would change them completely um, to where they wouldn't want to do it anymore well and it, that's and that's part of it it's like so for instance bipolar disorder is it's not happy sad it's not manic depression those are there's a reason that those phrases have been phased out bipolar disorder is um you know depression is is like your motor runs too low and mania is like your motor runs too fast so mm -hmm. that's not you may look down or you may look up, but that doesn't mean you feel it. Mm. But the thing is, when you are in a manic episode, a lot of times that feels pretty good. Yeah. Especially I was just saying manic is it's good. That's happy. You know, compared to, well, it's not happy, but at least it's up. At least you feel functional. Whereas when you are in the midst of a depressive episode, you can't get out of bed. So you take the meds, you often it will move you from a depressive episode either to baseline or into mania depending on what you're yeah where you started yeah exactly and so then you get somebody who starts to move up into there and they're like oh i feel fine now i'm gonna start i'm gonna stop taking the meds yeah which is like all of them <laughs> it's a lot it's a lot and it's super dangerous in a lot of ways when that happens and it's very, very important for an accurate diagnosis to be given, even if it's a, a question of, is this depression or is this bipolar? Mm. Because if someone has depression, they take antidepressants, which takes your whole baseline mood and tries to lift it up, mm -hmm. right? If you have bipolar disorder, the goal is to raise the, the lows and shrink the highs. To, it's a it's a mood stabilizer right mm -hmm. so you don't want to give an antidepressant to someone who has bipolar disorder because what it does is it takes their moods that range yeah, high and low it up. and it shoves them up often you know spiking them right into a uncontrollable manic episode which often involves psychosis and all kinds of other mm -hmm. miserable 
experiences. Yeah. Knowing I, several people in my life, uh, you know, they have mental health. I think everyone does uh, where they'll have a, I don't know if you call it a mental health illness or whatever you want to call it nowadays. Um, how hard is it to, to, or how easy is it to misdiagnose to something that, you know what I mean? Like so many people I know where they've been diagnosed with bipolar, but then later on it'll become PTSD or it's the Like it's there. It's almost like they're bouncing all over the place, depending on the doctor they go to. Depends on the doctor. Exactly that. Exactly that, that, that there is a reason why we have psychiatrists, psychologists, and therapists. I have no interest in psychiatry. I don't want to prescribe. I was only going to pursue an NP so that I could more accurately make suggestions. But at the end of the day, that's not, I don't, I don't think the brain is the issue as much as the environment and learning. Absolutely. I have no interest in doing therapy because I'm a shitty therapist. I'm not <laughs> patient and I don't want to hear about your problems. Yep. That I don't is like my whining truth. either. I just, I, well, I mean, I'm okay with it, with a good solid whine if it's deserved, but mm. navel gazing or like the refusal when you just kind of sit around and you stare at your stomach and you're like, oh, okay. Whoa, is me. And, yeah. and I'm like, there are Life people is miserable. Who tolerate that well. I don't. Mm. You know, I would be fired immediately. I, I had, to, you know, when I was working, because you have to work as a therapist for a certain period of time. And when I did, at least two people went directly from my office to my supervisors because I told them, I think maybe you don't need therapy. That would be the first two people I saw. And they, I mean, and, and they were like, they were pissed. And I was yeah. like, you know, and I've since learned how to word it differently because it's not about saying you don't have problems. It's about saying therapy is not going to help you. Everyone has problems. It's just how you cope with them. Yeah. Right. It's how you deal with them. And so many people have repressed or just completely muted their issues because they thought that was how they deal with them. And it's not. You have to actually face these things. Right. Right. So I'm not a good therapist. I'm not patient. And it was funny. It would, it would happen routinely, especially in the ER, because if I was doing an assessment in the ER to sort of determine like, can this person go home or do they have to immediately be admitted someplace? I don't have time. I don't have, I, I, I literally don't have time because for every person that I'm sitting with, I know that there's four lined up behind them. Oh yeah. yeah. So I have maybe four hours total with that person as opposed to like a, an in-depth forensic assessment is probably 20 hours. Total. So you shrink in that way down. And so I'd start talking to somebody and pretty quickly, it would be sort of a yes, no, you know, either here's a referral to substance abuse treatment, here's a referral to outpatient mental health treatment, or look, I can't send you home. So here's what's going to have to happen next. And once in a while, you get somebody who starts sort of either lying to me or gaming the system or not understanding it or whatever it may be. And they would kick back in their in their ways, mm -hmm. mm. whatever it may be, uh, getting snotty or getting angry or getting, you know, tuning me out or whatever, like, however people react. And that's all fine. But my answer would be, you're wasting my time and yours. I'll come back later. And they'd be like, no one 
has ever said that to me before. No one's ever has ever been this honest with me before. Will you be my therapist? And I would be like, thank you. And no, <laughs> you would no. hate me. Like you like it because it's new and different and novel but right I, now. But you would hate it as a therapist. As a therapist, you need patience and you need to, you need some nudging, but you need to make the changes in your own pace. And I've I never say, been patient. You do and you don't because there's so many people in that situation who they, a lot of it comes down to the fact that they need to hear things that they don't want to hear. And they, it's, they have to deal with things that they don't want to deal with. And so, yeah, patience is great. But at the same time, I mean, with people in my life, there are times where I'm sitting there and I'll listen to it all. And all right, fine. And other times where you're just like, okay, enough. Pull on the pants. Let's go. Like, we have to deal with it today. You know? Well, and, and that's, just... that's the thing, though, is that as a, as a good therapist... Your job is to do the similar early stage assessment stuff where you're, you're effectively climbing into somebody else's brain, but then you back out. And as an assessment person, I back out and I say, here's what I think has to happen next. And I'm going to go write up the, the hmm. paperwork because there's always mm -hmm. paperwork. A good therapist, Especially working for the state. <laughs> for real. And a good therapist stays with you and while they've been sort of wandering around the guided tour of the inside of your brain they figure out how to communicate with you mm. how to say the things you don't want to hear but in a way that you can tolerate it mm -hmm. so that you'll come back because otherwise you'll have a lot of first sessions and that's it <laughs> yeah you gotta have to be, you also have to say it in a way where it'll click right yeah so when you, when you were doing do when you're doing these assessments did you ever come across a situation where it became a situation that was dangerous for you? Right. Or maybe, maybe not necessarily dangerous because it's probably controlled, but uh, did you ever run into anybody that really scared you? Sure. Uh, more in the hospitals than okay. the prisons, because in the prison, they've already been adjudicated. They've already been through the system and mm -hmm. they don't want that tacked on. So the prison was, mostly fine i did interact with some serial killers and some pretty some people who were legally sane for sure but we're going to have them assessed just so we check all the boxes mm -hmm. so that happened and that was awkward at best <laughs> um you know were there times where you're like okay you 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 were you were literally found with the human head buried in your backyard separate from the body. That was That's the literal thing that happened. Do we agree with that? That's what happened. <laughs> what am I supposed to ask you next? Yeah. Like, Where what, do we how go do we, from how here? How do we go here from here? And, and you ask that, like, I'd be very honest with them about like, are you able to recognize that that's not the kind of thing you put on a resume? Uh, yeah. You have a human head in your backyard. What does this picture look like to you? <laughs> you know, what, what might this be? Yeah. Did so you kill small animals I, I, as a child? There was, I, I, the only times I was ever in, injured on the job was when I was working inside locked psychiatric facilities, which was, I did both in New York, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts. Um, you have people there who are more profoundly ill. Often there's some experimenting going on with the, with the med levels 
because we want to try and back people off meds when we can and sometimes they back them off too far and mm. that's not necessarily great either finding that sweet spot is very difficult um so i would i i, I got caught in the middle of things a couple of times where they weren't going after me but i happened to be a corporeal body in the hallway at the same time as them and physics happened so that happened um in terms of a sense of threat really only one comes to mind specifically and i do have to be careful on on confidentiality for this one mm -hmm. because to my knowledge this individual um let's assume it's a woman let's call her rachel i can remember those things and so uh she may she may still be in the hospital but probably not so we're, we're gonna i'm gonna act as though she was sitting next to me although please tell me <laughs> you know if that happens because mm -hmm. i should be alone in my basement right now i just, I just want that out there but this woman rachel uh developed an obsession with actually one of her college professors and started stalking mm. and in 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 there's you know we think of stalking as a romantic thing but there's actually a lot of flavors of stalking and sometimes it's actually scarier when it's not romantic in nature i feel like because stalking people... is only okay in a romantic comedy any other time it's yeah it's sketchy. even then like <laughs> yeah. i Having dealt That's with this woman, society and then it. I actually have a, because of my podcast, I have a stalker with a restraining order Ooh. and everything. Mm -hmm. So that's a whole other story. But um, Good times. Yeah. No. Uh, actually, <laughs> well, some of it was pretty funny. But but this this this, this Rachel woman um, developed this obsession with her, with a, with a professor. So if it wasn't yeah. romantic, she was just stalking them because she hated them. No, no, no. She, she was. It was an. It was a positive. Well, positive in her mind. Obsession that she felt that this professor was speaking only to her. Oh, one of those. And, okay. And it was actually a same-sex professor. Gotcha. Although I don't believe that there was any sexual component to the obsession i believe it was about like this is my best friend she gotcha. wants to be my best friend or is my best friend and just doesn't know it and she cares about me in the way that nobody else cares about me and so i had to go through and do an entire assessment battery which means a whole bunch of tests and a whole bunch of interviewing for her and you have to maintain that poker face because sometimes she's saying things and you're like, bullshit. But you can't say that to the <laughs> See, person. Fired. You know? And as well, I, I, I needed to be able to gather information to testify in court. Because my opinion about her was that, yeah, she's, to get with the jargon, she's fucked up. Mm, but not crazy. in a way that yes, batshit crazy, but not in a way that that's uncontrollable. Like we can let her go home. Mm -hmm. Don't please don't. But like she could attend to her personal hygiene and she could mm. pay bills and make appointments and she could drive a car. It's just that she's also batshit crazy. And so she doesn't belong in a psychiatric hospital she belongs in jail and that mm -hmm. was my opinion and i had to be very very careful on how i broached that and maybe 
12 or 14 hours in to this pseudo relationship that she and I developed, she asked me, what do I think? And I answered, I don't know. Hmm. Because I am under no circumstances. I was in a room that was maybe eight by six. It was a, a, a enthusiastic closet is what it was. <laughs> and I was not going to look at this woman who has already developed a dangerous and threatening obsession with a professor and tell her, I think that you have a personality disorder and that you are a dangerous human being and that you should be in prison, not here. I'm not going to say that. Not yeah, I don't do think you'd ever really want to tell them. You're always just like, I'm that, gathering evidence. It's fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, because I had to say it in court eventually, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to say it when there's no witnesses no. around. And she, so I said, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I don't have a solid sense yet. We still have a couple more tests that we got to go through. Can we start that? And she stands up and she leans over. We're this like crappy industrial aluminum <laughs> desk. <laughs> that mm -hmm. they made, you know, all of them in the 50s and they're still just out in the wild now. Yeah, yeah. She leans over that and she grabs hold of my, I had my ID badge on a lanyard and she rips it off of me. And so she's like, I have you now. I have your identity now. You this have is... to tell me. And I'm going, this is not how I expected this day to go. <laughs> that took a turn. And so I was just like, you can have that. That is fine. All I had was my first name on it anyway. And when I practiced, I practiced under my maiden name mm -hmm. rather than my Probably married smart. name because my now, was married that, that, name is weird. Was that a conscious choice? No. So that was the only reason not for like safety or anything like that. Oh, it's for, for safety is because okay. my married name is weird and okay. we are one of the only Walinga families in the country. Mm. Hey, so Walinga is your married name? Uh, see, I was before the show. We were talking about your last name, and I was like, "Man, I wish I had a cool last name instead of the shitty that. one that I got." <laughs> well, it's Dutch, so you know we are not the flying Wallendas. It is Wallinga, and that's and so I would I lived my life under my married name, but I practiced under my maiden name, which was much much more common. And so I was like, "All she has is my first name," but even if she, she were to ask around or get hold of the mm -hmm. you know the paperwork which she would eventually through the court process she would get my married name mm -hmm. and if she wanted to pursue it from there we'd deal with it yeah now what you know, should what did she do for this all to go down in the first place i know she was stalking but like she, did she so take she it a step further call, she called and emailed and started showing up at the professor's home and that was disturbing. And then she started sending these videos. And now this is in the late 90s. And so you have to picture camcorder. So you get VHS a VHS tape in the mail. Tapes, That's creepy. Right? And, and it was, it was, but it was the equivalent of selfies. Yeah. Right. And it was her speaking directly to the camera, speaking directly to the professor about this is my last will and testament. I am dying and you need to know these words that I'm telling you. And in the background, well, first of all, in the like she had right here, she had what would have been it's called a heplock or a pick line, which are mm -hmm. um, s s durable IVs, basically. Mm -hmm. And except if you looked at it, it was on wrong. It was on upside down. So that wasn't great, but that was helpful. Like it's helpful when people screw things up. 
And also, if you looked in the background, you'd notice that she was standing outside the professor's summer home. <laughs> okay. Which she, <laughs> she had no reason to have had access to that. Oh, man. Yeah. Could you imagine watching that and be like, this looks familiar. Oh, my God, that's my house. That's oh, my I house. That's where my right kids now. are. That's where my dogs are. That's where my, you know, whatever. Yeah. And so that was disturbing. And she wouldn't stop. And there were restraining orders in place. And she wouldn't stop even then. And she ended up starting to vandalize some of the professor's belongings. Uh, flattened her tires in her car and key so things car. were escalating. She went, she went full on Carrie Underwood on the woman's car, basically. <laughs> it so, makes me think of uh, the movie, it was like mid 90s Fear. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yep. Right. Mark Wahlberg. Yep. Yeah. He beat the shit out of himself to make it make, uh, yeah. make his case. Yeah. <laughs> just go fucking. I mean, that's a rom that's a romantic comedy gone wrong, but I just mean, like. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that was that was that was disturbing. Dealing dealing with her was disturbing because if she's willing to do that to one person, how do you know who she's going to choose next? Um, yeah, yeah. Now I, I gotta I ask, how is the serial killer stuff? That's got to be fascinating and terrifying. They're friggin' hilarious for the most part. Really? How so? I mean, they have to mask. Like you talk about oh, masking, yeah. and like they're probably really, really good at it. <laughs> you have to because in, now, bear in mind, all we know about we don't know we don't know shit about serial killers and this whole concept of like the McDonald triad being you know you you know someone's more likely to be a serial killer if they wet the bed, set fires, or are cruel to animals. Mm -hmm. We don't know. The only serial killers we've ever talked to are the failures. That's true. The ones who have gotten caught. It's got to be a lot harder to be a serial killer nowadays, though. I hope so. You know what I'm saying? There, there's way too many I, I, cameras. I do hope so. You know, but, you know, that being said, like, they, they, they have to be, they have to think on their feet. They have to be some form of charismatic. And a lot of times when we think charisma, we think like engaging or intriguing or somebody you really want to be around when, when, when you talk to them. Not necessarily. Sometimes... Like there was a guy in Poughkeepsie, New York, who I did not work with at all. I, I didn't practice in this area, but he was known for having such abysmal personal hygiene that people didn't want to get within 10 feet of him. Mm. That solved a lot of problems for him. <laughs> right? Because people didn't get near him and people didn't get near his house and he could do whatever he wanted inside his house. That's true. Yeah. And, and they're so used to bad smells. Different, yeah. There's different sort of ways of of it's their they consider it their life's work it's like their masterwork yeah and it's there's different ways of getting done what you want done but so they're always unpredictable and making assumptions is always a bad idea mm. but like the most fun hands down the most fun i ever had at a job was that was a day that i had to testify in court for a reevaluation of a, a guy who had been convicted of i think four murders but suspected of several more and he knew what i was there to say i told him i, I didn't lie because i didn't ever want there to be like a courtroom standoff kind of thing like i wanted yeah. i would sit them and explain to them this is what i'm seeing this is what you're going to see me say mm. if they wanted to hear it if they didn't i was like and there you go <laughs> but so this guy he knew that i was going to say that he is guilty as fuck. Uh -huh. He is, you know, 
guilty with no apparent legal insanity and send him back to solitary like that's yeah that was going to be my opinion and he was like that's fine i'm just looking forward to going to court because i'm looking forward to getting out of the building for the day and i was like you have a different idea of fun than i do but <laughs> i think we'd established that already fair okay and so it's sort of like chain of custody where like someone has to be with them at all times mm. to prevent potential escape but also just sometimes yeah, sense. they get bored and they'll start confessing to things and i used to hope so much that they would not confess something new to me yeah because i'd be like i just want to move on from here like i don't please don't I've, tell me things. i've had to be was, a witness in things and that sucks i hate that I don't, I don't wish that upon anyone and so i was just you know just sort of sitting there with him and i'm like my friend <laughs> you're not going to confess anything new to me today right and he's like, oh, no, I've already said all my shit. I just want to go back to my cell eventually. I'm just enjoying my little field trip. And I was like, okay, okay. Now what? And he goes, what did the farmer do? What did the farmer say when he lost his tractor? What? <laughs> what? What did the farmer say when he lost his tractor? And I'm like, I am not keeping up with you right now. <laughs> You're on a different and he level. Goes, he said, where's my tractor? And I spent the next three and a half hours trading dad jokes with a serial killer. <laughs> there you go. That was how I spent Jerry would have laughed his ass off. Yeah. And well, it would have taken me a second to understand what he was talking about. Like, he, he said, where's my tractor? I'm like, that's not a joke. Oh, now I get it. <laughs> yeah that because actually you know if you talk about dad jokes some of those seem pretty psychotic Ooh, for real it's all in delivery why don't man? cannibals <laughs> eat clowns i don't know why not I, I think i know this one because they mm. taste funny that's it <laughs> actually, right? my, like there's, there's my favorite one to right use uh, my favorite one to use on my kids is we're driving by a cemetery i'll point out like you guys see that yeah yeah people are dying to get in there I love that one. <laughs> My favorite. Thank God I'm not your kid. <laughs> is more of like the. It's not so much a dad joke as like the shaggy dog joke, where it's like weird and long, and I won't go into the whole thing. But the the punchline is one that I will now just randomly throw at my kids. It, it, moments in yeah, because they've heard like, it. What's that? Because they've heard it before. So they oh, already they've know heard it a thousand times. Yeah. And they know exactly what it is, but so I'll just randomly throw that at them with no context or anything. And, <laughs> and they'll be like, we like dad's jokes better. And I'll be like, good, get out of the car. <laughs> like, that's the answer. We have to have the conversation way too often in my household that my oldest is not funny and that my my daughter, my middle child, is the comedian. Like, he just, he can't get it. He tries to come up with jokes and it just, we're all sitting there like, that was awful. Stop it. <laughs> this is painful <laughs> you need to stop yeah my, my daughter does the same thing she's younger she'll she'll just spit out what she calls a joke and i'll be like that was just a statement that's but that. she's young <laughs> enough that she doesn't understand that yet he's that's what, 12 that's actually, he knows what comedy i'm is. giving her false reinforcement on that because i think it's hysterical how bad she is at jokes so she thinks she's really good at it Watch, she's gonna become a comedian. It's literally just gonna be her not telling jokes. <laughs> People are gonna love that shit. So, serial killers. 
have you ever seen this picture behind me? Yeah, but I'm not a neuropsychologist. The one on the left is a bat. The one on the right is a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, I know you're not, but I, I just put this up because I thought it was interesting. Uh, so an article that uh, Grizz and I read some time ago, they did some brain scans on serial killers. Right, right Grizz? Yeah, yeah. And so they did uh, brain scans on them and they found that the front cortex, I can't tell you what that is, uh, didn't have activity in it. Mm -hmm. But they also said that like someone like me, I'm not a serial killer that you know of, uh, could have the same thing, but not be a serial killer. They said all serial killers wouldn't have it. See, exactly. Mm-hmm. So they, all serial killers had it, but you could have it and not be a serial killer. All of the failed serial killers that <laughs> self-selected to be part of their study. Had That's it. true. There's probably a lot of really successful yes. serial killers where it's fully active. Well, so what's yeah. fascinating about this one is the guy who was doing the study said, you know, I'm going to scan yeah. my own brain. Robert he had Hemp. it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, well, shit, am I a serial killer? Well, <laughs> well yeah, uh, you're, psychopath. You're, you're usually pretty aware of that because burying bodies takes work. So like getting your body disposal is something where you don't forget as easily. But yeah, yeah no, I, I tend. I'm not full on psychopathic. Like I, I can experience emotion. I do have bonds with my loved ones and that kind of thing. But I also can distance myself from situations and not take things personally and think of things in a more clinical removed way than average, which is what allowed me to do my job, but also could have allowed me to end up on the other side of the courtroom. Now, yeah, that's, um, have you always been that way? Maybe. So uh, the, re- the reason I ask is because I can kind of uh, behave the same way. I think a lot of people can. Yeah, I know a lot of people can, but you know, we were on the topic where she had a drastic change in her. Uh, That's true. Her oh, I see. Yeah, no, no, for yeah. sure. No, for sure. Before I had epilepsy, okay. for sure, because I, 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 so I actually started off studying mechanical engineering. Mm-hmm. Oh damn! Because <laughs> I'm good at it. I'm good with technology and I'm good at numbers and I really wanted to move out of my parents' house. And (laughs) the school I went to had a program that allowed me to leave high school a year early. And so I was all over that. And I got two and a half years in and realized it was boring Mm. for me. I don't like math this much. (laughs) To be in a, well, they give you, you know, you got 30 kids in a room and you give them a problem, you know, a physics problem or whatever and you give them the same variables and the same information and they all do the work and they come out with an answer and mm-hmm. they all should have the same answer and you want consistency in engineering you want bridges to consistently remain bridges <laughs> and not become yep. a pile of not bridge anymore right so if that's what like, you're going for yeah <laughs> i i acknowledge the importance of that but it wasn't for me whereas if you've got a psychology classroom and you give 30 kids the same prompt, draw a house, tell me a story, that kind of thing, you'll get 30 different answers and they're all correct. How cool is that? Yeah. How random is that? I mean, it's cool, but it's also, to me, it can be, it can drive me nuts because everything you see in your life, everyone's gonna take it away differently, right? Mm -hmm. Same idea as you have 30 people who witness something go down and you have 30 different examples of how something went down. 
Yeah. yeah. And that could be a pain yeah, in the oh, butt. I, and, and by the way, on that note, eyewitness testimony is shit and don't bother. Yeah. Haven't they figured that out? And they just, they kind of, if it's not literally recorded, they don't worry. Like they don't use eyewitness for that stuff. It holds more weight with juries because juries believe in it. Mm. So it's, it's a tactic they still use. Mm-hmm. But I mean, like when I know they've gone into whole the, the whole memory thing and within minutes outside of it, you've already, your memories change. It's like dreams, right? Where you just start forgetting and it's just starts getting molded the further you get away from the event. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now it's interesting that you mentioned, mentioned that you were, uh, you were an engineering student and you found it incredibly boring. I was yeah. also an engineering student who found it incredibly boring. <laughs> I actually, one of my last classes that kind of like, uh, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back for me on that one was, it was like a practical class. I don't remember what it was called, but basically we were like getting assignments where this is an engineering failure, analyze it and figure out what happened so it doesn't happen again. I wanted to kill myself. That's how incredibly bored I was. And I was like, this is like the day in the life of an engineer. I'm not an engineer. I'm a people person. <laughs> That's true. Know. Most engineers That's are not people I don't, persons. I don't know if I'm a people person because I often don't like people. Mm, I, I love You can be people. a people person and not like people. I suppose yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't like, I don't like a lot of people. Um, <laughs> but I find them fascinating. And I think the big trick for me, like I was going to go into profiling. Mm-hmm. I was going to do full on FBI profiling Which and cool. I decided not to, because first of all, I'm not comfortable having guns in the home. Mm. I have four kids. I, I didn't have kids at the time, but I wanted to. And that wasn't something that I was great with for myself. And also you have to, if, you know, first of all, you have to do serve as a, a sort of garden variety. I guess, FBI agent for some period of time before you move on to becoming a behavioral analysis unit special agent. And I'm not that patient, for one. And for two, once you're in the BAU, you have to travel. Which wherever, is, wherever the crime is, right? Right, right. Because, yeah. you know, idea, that's ideal, really, because you don't actually want to live in a place where there's enough <laughs> say, serial killers to keep you busy. Just around. Detroit. <laughs> but it means, well, yeah. But, I mean, I do live in Boston, so there's that. But, yeah, Boston crime ain't that bad anymore. <laughs> well, I lived on Mission Hill, so oh, okay. it, was, it was pretty bad in the it 90s. It was bad for a while, but nowadays, I mean, crime in Boston's gone way down. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the pandemic helped with that. Um, <laughs> nobody leaving their house and stuff. But but that for me, it was it was again related to I couldn't be the kind of mother I wanted to be mm. if I was traveling forty eight weeks out of the year. Yeah. yeah, a lot of jobs like that that everyone dreams of having, you can't have a family life. <laughs> it doesn't work. Right. <laughs> your job is your life. Yeah. Funny thing about families is they want to see you. Sometimes, well, you know, more than I would like, actually, honestly, <laughs> like there's got to be a happy medium in there somewhere. But so I decided to go into forensic psychology instead because you can live and stay in one place. Mm-hmm. And also around this time, this was in the mid to late 90s, I was starting to realize that profiling is a lot of. It's not guesswork, 
but it's at the earlier stages and I didn't want to do research and I didn't want to guess and I didn't want to guess wrong. Mm. So did I really want to write textbooks or did I want to go and sit down with these people and talk to them and hear their stories and learn about them? And it turns out I really, really like the latter. And I know that I, I'm not full on, you know, top of the scale on the, the, PCLR, the psychopathy checklist that you were talking about, the hair mm. study. I'm not top of the scale there, but I'm high enough that I don't really care whether I'm right. Mm -hmm. mm. I think I am because I'm pretty <laughs> smart, but I don't really care whether a trial outcome matches what I think it should. Yeah. And you need that. You need that, that distance and that that ability to get up on the stand and tell other people about a third person that's in the room and tell them what your opinions are and what your you know both educated guests but also just like it was really unpleasant to be in the room with this human being and, and you're looking at them right there and you're mm -hmm. saying it to them and i had to be okay with doing that and it turns out i am mm. so i can do that and that was sort of the ideal job for me. And I miss it every day. I, it sounds like a cool job. I, I mean, the, if the one thing we've gotten out of this, Jerry, I, I don't want to speak for you, but I believe it's true that it's Go like, ahead, speak for me. Everyone has a story and it's fascinating to hear. And when you get into stuff where they're like committing crimes and stuff, it get, makes it even cooler. I mean, that's why crime does so good on TV. Yeah. For real. Serial killers are fascinating and terrifying. <laughs> I'm glad you spoke for me. Now I don't have to say it. You're right. <laughs> See, I'm, I already know. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think uh, after having spent quite a bit of time with Grizz, he would probably register pretty high on that scale, too. Oh, probably. <laughs> yeah. He just doesn't I can be people. very just not give a fuck. Like, yeah. who cares? I'm like, uh, he could see something like, oh, that's problematic, but I just don't care. That's Grizz. <laughs> well, yeah, I've been there. I've been there. I, you know, the number of times where I've looked at my children and been like, look, I love you because that's the rule. <laughs> I have to, but I don't like you right now. And yeah. I also don't care what you do. <laughs> so you figure it out. And I mean, none of them have been actually, I, I lie. One of my, one of my children has been in the back of a police car. That's my youngest who was seven at the time. So that was a <laughs> thing. Sounds that sounds like a fascinating story. <laughs> <laughs> I find my problem with life, and I, I feel, and maybe, I don't know if we're getting away from it or if we're getting worse. There's so much stuff that people won't say because, oh, society says you can't say that, right? I remember a friend of mine, they really, really wanted a boy, uh, and they had a bunch of girls, and they got pregnant, and there was another girl, and she was, the, the woman was upset that they weren't going to have a boy. And she's like, I shouldn't be saying this. I'm like, no, you absolutely should. You're thinking it. It's in your brain. Like, it's okay. That's not a bad thing. Just because society says, oh, you shouldn't say that. You're still going to love the kid no matter what the hell they are. And listen, I guarantee most people have a period when they have children where they really feel very indifferent to it. Later on in life, they change their mind there and they realize, oh, I love my children and I took care of them for a reason. But I think everyone has that moment where they're just like, I'm doing this because I'm supposed to. But that's it. Anybody who has ever sat through a middle school band concert yeah. oh God. understands what regret 
feels like. <laughs> so true. <laughs> that and ballet. Ballet, listen, the five minutes that your your son or, or daughter or whatever is on stage are great. The other two hours, miserable. Absolutely <laughs> miserable. <laughs> Just kill yeah, me. I'll be the first to admit, I love my kids, but there are many times where I say to myself, man, having kids fucking sucks. Oh, yeah. There's more bad. There's more good than bad. But you know what I'm saying? Like, the, there's so much out there where people won't say something because they're not supposed to. When realistically, I think they should be saying it. I think it's healthier to say it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't I don't buy the bullshit where a lot of people are like being a parent's the greatest thing on Earth. My <laughs> opinion oh, is fuck that my opinion is being a parent sucks almost all the time. But I think it's, it's worth it. It's an, I, I mean, my oldest is 21. My youngest is nine. And so I have this whole range of kids. I've been a parent for longer than I've been alive. If you add their ages up by now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's 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 work. It's they're thankless little beasts with terrible <laughs> personal hygiene. They don't clean up after themselves. They don't listen. They all they wanted to use be on their fucking screens 24 seven. Like they have all of these like they're just narcissistic little dicks. <laughs> and I love them because I love them because I do feel mm-hmm. a bond and because I will go full on mama bear mm-hmm. toward anybody that threatens or harms one of my kids. Oh, absolutely. That being said, there, you know, love is automatic, like is earned. Yeah, and I've said fair, to my yeah. kids, like, you are not trying to make me like you today. Let <laughs> me know when you change your mind. But right this second, you don't want me to like you. And guess what? You've succeeded. <laughs> you probably don't like me right now either. <laughs> Which is totally fair. I'm not especially likable half the time. That's a, that's entirely allowed. <laughs> yeah, I actually, uh, I, I have a very... Uh, maybe controversial theory about kids. Uh, I like kids. I think they're entertaining. I love watching videos of kids saying fucked up shit. Like yesterday, I watched a little kid say he's going to uppercut Santa. Uh, <laughs> That's fantastic. But I, I firmly believe it doesn't matter how smart your kid is. They're all so, so fucking dumb. And that's <laughs> where most of that entertainment comes from. It's true. So- kids ruin everything. <laughs> I mean, they just do. <laughs> uh, yeah yeah all the time i walk into a room where my daughter is and just say why why did this happen what the fuck Wait. happened in here like what <laughs> yeah and yeah, i mean there's times now where i'll just walk in and be like do you need me to say it and yeah like, when no. they, you know like, better good <laughs> fix it <laughs> <laughs> yeah my daughter's still at the age where she knows that that's how I feel, but she will not act on it unless she's told to. That's a Hi, seven year old for you. I have to imagine your daughter loves testing the waters. She, listen, I've never <laughs> seen such a thing before. She might be pretty high on the psychopath scale. Yeah, it's true. just, it's absurd. Like, did, I watched you do this. Did you do that? It wasn't me. I didn't do that. Okay. My youngest is, my youngest is also psychopathic. She's, she's adopted. Yep. So, insert a long story here i died in childbirth after the third and i i I undid it like i'm not still dead by the way but i told you (laughs) wait a minute medical shit happens (laughs) seriously someone in the delivery room had strep throat that got into my bloodstream during the birthing process and uh if you've ever read the tabloid reports of necrotizing fasciitis the flesh-eating bacteria i had that abdominally 
Mm, so I spent brutal. a week and a half in a coma and six weeks in the hospital and a full year on home health care. So I now know why you live in Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so we had to hire a nanny and we hired this college girl from locally who did a fine job as a nanny. Like, I feel like that's important to put out there that she was a good nanny. She got how we parented. We don't spank or ground mostly because that's not as effective as guilt. Mm -hmm. And so I err in that direction, but she got it. Like she got how we parented and we were fine. And then I started to get better and I got to the point where I was going to go back to work. And she started to say that she wanted to be a single mother. And I was like, are mm. you high? Terrible. <laughs> like, like, I understand that people do this when they are well established in their life, or yeah. people do this when shit has gone in unexpected ways. But you're 22. Yeah, that's not something you want. <laughs> you have no life skills. And you have your family has stopped speaking to you like, look, you're gonna make your choices. But um, we're moving and the new place that we're moving to does not have an in-law apartment. So good luck with you. I'm putting my kids in daycare. See ya. And that's how it went. And two and a half years later, like we'd been in touch a little bit on Facebook, whatever. And so I got like the Disney version mm -hmm. of what was going on. And two and a half years later, she calls me in the middle of the night to say, I need help. Um, I, my family has stopped speaking to me. I am living in one of those motels that rents by the hour or the month mm. i've broken up with the guy that i hooked up with she got she hooked up with a guy two weeks after the baby was born not not the biological father um who got and, a good scenario going on right now <laughs> you know and and this is this is legitimately one of my favorite sentences to speak aloud like like if i could write country music <laughs> it would involve this line because she said i just lost my job at the mayonnaise factory <laughs> can you imagine what that smells like in august in massachusetts <laughs> like my god but so but to, but for real though she was like i i'm i'm hitting a wall i need to admit myself to the psych hospital will you take care of the baby of course like like of, of you know my my mindset has always been like if you can help then you should mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and that way if you can't then you say no i can't do it with no guilt but i we could and the next day so we, so we got the we got the baby set up in the pack and play i sort of nudged my husband awake and i was like there's a baby <laughs> that's a bad wake up <laughs> in your office just so you know and he was and he said and i hate when he's right man i hate when they're right and he said he's like should we just jump ahead to the point where we adopt her right now and i was like shut up that's not going to happen that's not going to be a thing <laughs> well um four months later we had to assertively uninvite the biological mother from living here anymore that she was turns out that um dcf had an open case and had since the baby's birth. Um, the child has been abused in every way you can hurt a child. And the, the mother was, was actively sabotaging 
the effort. I mean, she had a personal therapist. They had a family therapist. She had a person helping her find jobs. She had another person helping her find housing, like all of these systems around her. And she was still actively sabotaging it in ways. And so I was like, you got to go. Like, sabotaging we, I, what? Like her quitting life? jobs, getting hired, um, you know, or getting fired rather from. I mean, uh-huh. if you listen, if you can find a way to get fired from one of the big box craft stores in December. Mm. I don't know what you're doing. At your yeah, job, stealing shit. <laughs> but that takes some work. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know plenty of people who work harder to not work <laughs> and she, that was her like for the most part i feel like people who are on welfare or state assistance are on there because they've hit a rough point and they need some help and they move on that's what i expected from her and in this case no no no, no. she's the horror story that a lot of people like to point at it's like this is why we shouldn't have welfare at all and i was like again happy medium but after several months i learned that um she was in the process of sabotaging yet another job and she had just declined another housing opportunity and that she had tried to steal all four children's identities and was engaging in sex work out of my home and i was like i don't know which of those is the last straw but one of them yeah <laughs> yeah I bet. somewhere in there the whole bundle <laughs> you you gotta go you gotta go you can leave the baby with us mm-hmm. and and get yourself established or you can take her with you but you have to go. And she was like, I'll leave the baby with you. I think it'll be easier to get set up in an apartment in a job. And I'm like, that's gonna happen, but okay, <laughs> fine. By this point, I was already legal guardian. Mm-hmm. I was gonna say, cause I can't imagine making, otherwise that's gonna be a massive headache. <laughs> well, and she was making really bad choices and medically there were some things where I had to kind of step in and speak up mm. on behalf of the child. And sometimes the mother would go missing for a week mm-hmm. and the, the kid had some medical issues going on and we already realized by then like this is this is a weird kid like a two-year-old that doesn't ask yeah. questions mm-hmm. mm. and if you ask her a question and that includes like what that she would literally duck and cover because she didn't know how to deal with people communicating with her that's rough she does not have autism although we may have her evaluated for it because that mm-hmm. may be like a secondary thing, but her primary diagnosis is more trauma-based, is more just if nobody talks to you for the first two years of life, this is what happens. And so she's, the, the biological mother said, I'm gonna leave the baby with you, I'll go get set up. Two weeks later, she called and said, I'm never gonna get better, you keep her. And we've never seen her since. That's crazy. So surprise, it's a girl. <laughs> and, um, my kid is academically very bright. Mm-hmm. She wants to make people happy. She wants to do what she thinks she want her to do. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, she's the missing part is the she doesn't she's not intuitive. She doesn't get other people at all. Mm. So she's a sociopath. She yeah. doesn't understand emotion. She doesn't understand connection. And the thing is, she's trying really hard not to be. And we're working with her on, okay, well, look, if you don't understand emotions, that's cool. That's fine. That's, there are jobs that we can steer you to down the road. For now, let's worry about your math test. You know, and for now, let's find like, you know, for instance, if you're a sociopath, 
you're going to suck at team sports. <laughs> and I don't like sports to begin with. Get into and, wrestling. <laughs> you know, well, she, gymnastics was her. There answer. you go. Gymnastics was her get because she, what she likes is dress up, but she doesn't understand dress up. She just puts on all of the dress up. Okay. So with gymnastics, it's like, here is your outfit to, that you get dressed up in to go play, go do gymnastics to go play. And she loves that. That works well for her. Um, she doesn't have any friends. Mm. She never has. Um, she still doesn't ask questions in, in the way that you think a nine-year-old would. But that has to be okay. Like that's who and how I mean, she, she had is. a rough start. She, I mean, and I don't think you. I think there's there are some traumas and scars that you can overcome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are some you cannot. And I think that when you have zero emotional connection or communication for the first two years of life, I think that hardwires. In your brain. In well, yeah, I mean, ways. the first few years of your life are just so like they set you as who you are. You don't even know it. The first five, I've always thought first five years after that, so many other factors come in. Your first five years is what you can mold them into a person. Right. After that, it, the world right. takes over. I don't <laughs> even think we got five years. I think first two, maybe yeah, might less. Be. And yeah. in her case, it, it became a matter of, well, we're going to do the best we can for her. Yeah. I mean, that's all you and can do. She's absolutely a sociopath. Like she is. And I'm trying to work. Like, I don't look at her and say, you're a sociopath because <laughs> that's not helpful. But, but to try to, to take the, the stigma out of that word. Yeah. Like it yeah. just means socio means interaction with other people and path means pathological. Like you're not, you don't interact with other people in a normal way. That's okay. Neither do I. Mm. I mean, she could be on the spectrum a lot of a lot of autistic people have that issue they just I don't know how to deal with it. autism is something that you're born with yeah i agree i don't believe she was born with this i believe this was beaten into her mm-hmm. almost like a ptsd kind of thing exactly mm-hmm. like ptsd but that being said we are going to have her assessed relatively soon for autism because if she meets the diagnostic criteria she gets more services through the schools mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely now i mean that kind of goes in kind of goes into this thing that jerry and i have where almost every woman we know of our generation has mental health issues <laughs> every single yeah. one of them and yeah, i don't know if that's a societal thing or something i don't know yeah, i would yeah. argue men as well they just show it different they appear well it yeah it's also men aren't for years weren't allowed to have mental health <laughs> Yeah. Right. You're not allowed to express it. And so men, you know, depression in men looks like anger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Depression yeah. in women looks like sadness or withdrawal. Mm. Yeah, that, that's true. That's an interesting way of looking at it. But Perspectives from Dr. Grizz. <laughs> uh... <laughs> uh, but yeah, I guess yeah, your your daughter is probably in the best place she could be considering your background she's you know people say that and like fine i think what matters is that she's safe yeah yeah she's in a better house and she's consistent and she's stable here and we have to remind her you know pretty frequently a couple times a year at least maybe more we are your family now Mm -hmm. because she can remember she can remember her her biological family because trauma memories are different 
-hmm. from normal memories. And so she can remember things from before she turned two. Which is crazy. And it's horrifying. I would erase that for her if I could. Uh, some of the things that she can remember. But that being said, she knows that she used to have a different family and now she has us. And there's some part of her that she asks not maliciously at all, but in a very matter of fact, flat way, when will I get my next family? Mm. That's crazy. And we've had to be very, very clear with her about you won't. Yeah. But the problem is, too, and I mean, there's whole there's a whole bunch of ways that this could unfold. But f for one, she's not great with she doesn't know what a stranger is. Mm. Okay. So, like for yeah. children, the whole concept of stranger danger is entire bullshit. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, your kids are in vastly more risk from people that know them than from strangers. Except if an adult is looking to offend on a stranger who's a child, they're excellent profilers. Those are the excellent profilers in the world. Mm -hmm. They know how to pick a victim. Yeah. And my kid, I can see it. And I'm not looking to offend. And so if somebody was looking to offend, they would have to be able to pick it out that this is a child who's very obedient and very withdrawn in a lot of ways sort of flat affect you don't see that there's something wrong and she's very sort of gullible mm -hmm. in a way so like without you know the, the the ploy that we all sort of were grown up with series like can you help me go find my puppy and the little kid would be like yeah okay and with the other kids my other three kids i would practice with them a little bit about like the answer to anything that a stranger ever tells you is i have to ask my mom mm -hmm. just that's the script I have to ask my mom and with my youngest there's no script to give her yeah because she wouldn't make it wouldn't make sense to her doesn't make sense to her and she doesn't like she like there have been times like one of the times we, we were going to the park and we practiced on the way there because i was going to try to let her go to a different playground like my my oldest played softball and the softball fields one way and the playgrounds behind me and so it's like you know you have to decide like what are you going to do here and so i practice like okay what do you do if a stranger comes up and says this or that you know can you help me find my puppy can you help me this can you whatever and she kept giving, you know, after what, like she learned the answer is, I have to ask my mom, I have to ask my mom, I have to, okay. And so we're pulling in to the parking lot and I'm like, one last, just to make sure we really <laughs> got it. And I'm like, okay, so what if somebody tells you, hey, can you come over here? I just dropped my phone under my car. Can you kind of scooch down under my car and get it? What do you say? And she goes, okay. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> son of a, but that's the thing is that she's, she's gullible in that sense and so she's at a higher risk for stranger crimes if they're going to exist and the problem that, that that's all rooted in is that for a kid to understand what safety means they have to be able to imagine what danger means mm -hmm. and she doesn't have an imagination that's the easiest way I describe it to people is that she, she doesn't ask questions. She doesn't have curiosity in that sense. She doesn't. Because it was beaten out know, of her in a she, sense. She, yeah, she just sort of everything is she is she's completely literal at all times. 
and she she can't imagine what danger means she's already survived it mm -hmm. so for one thing danger doesn't mean the same thing to her as it means to other kids and for another thing the idea of understanding the concept of danger you need to have that before you can understand what it means to be safe and she doesn't have that basic yeah. so you'll have to uh, the other thing is and you know if she ever does date and whatnot that's the scenario where you have you run into those really shitty relationships where you because they prey on people like that to where they just it, you know they make it a scenario where they just constantly beat down because they're looking for people to do it to who will be obedient and who will just take it and keep taking it and keep taking it and keep taking it and it happens all too often but they're looking for people like that to for that relationship just so they can and make themselves feel better. I mean, for like, I, I, if I can get her to 12 without using drugs mm -hmm. and to 15 without engaging in sex work, mm -hmm. that will be my hallmarks of success. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm because drugs and sex feel good and they bring you attention and she likes attention. <laughs> yeah. Like, in so a way it, again, that, you know, in a way more than other kids do, like in this, just, she doesn't get how to appropriately get it. Mm -hmm. And so I worry for her safety. And so, you know, is she better off here than other places? Maybe, maybe not, but she's certainly, better off than she was in the family she was born into and the problem is that story is way too often nowadays like there's so many people who have kids who shouldn't they should never have had kids <laughs> i cannot believe that you need permission to get your ears pierced and you need a license to drive a car and i mean i'm in massachusetts so like that's saying something but you can just create you can just like grow another human being with no permission that's insane I got a dog last, uh, yeah, about a year ago. It is way fucking harder to get a dog than it ever is to have a kid and I mean, keep that kid. <laughs> well, and yeah. that was the other thing is that adopting is so much more. Okay, as the, 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 the woman in the relationship, I can tell you that adoption is more intrusive and physically invasive than conceiving a child biologically. <laughs> Which is saying something. Right. And I, I give it to people who adopt because it is, a, I mean... A, is it a massive pain in the beginning, right? Great once you have the kid, but then you're also dealing with, there's a lot of luggage there. <laughs> like yes. almost every time, you know, uh, I, I, if you've adopted someone, you know, props. <laughs> for I mean, for real, whether you chose to, or whether, you know, like I find myself in this weird position because most people who adopt, I mean, every I believe everybody who adopts in some way or other pays for it either financially or you know through their efforts emotionally or emotional labor or whatever it may be and we're certainly paying for it in that sense like, we're, like it's a lot of effort but the difference is they most people seek it out i did not yeah you're adopting i tried hard you. not to adopt we tried hard to get her biological mother on her feet and wave goodbye and it didn't happen and you know of course we could have said no but i didn't have the heart to do that to this kid 
who'd yeah. already lost everything once. Yeah. No, that's a crazy scenario. <laughs> yeah, my former nanny. Yeah. yeah. That's uh that's probably a great place to wrap it up before we go off on another tangent because we'll talk for another hour. Yes, we oh, will. I'll have I'll have more tangents. I always have more tangents. <laughs> that's it. Jerry has to shut me up all the time. It's just what I, the yes. way it goes. <laughs> but uh yeah, so where can uh where can our listeners find more of you? Oh god. Well, I my show is called Ignorance Was Bliss. I'm at IWB podcast on all of the social medias and I'm online far too much. So I'm reasonably <laughs> easy to find. <laughs> and I, like I said, I very recently released episode number 370 and I'm rolling up on a million downloads, which is insane. That's like, cool. What is wrong with people? <laughs> like, but you know, the, the reality is that each episode is intended to be standalone <laughs> and they are not all true crime and they're not all psychology i talk to creators of different types whether they be podcasters or authors or actors or sometimes we do go down the true crime route and that sort of thing and we sort mm -hmm. of see how it unfolds mm. sounds good i like it yeah totally <laughs> and uh we will direct people to you and thanks for being on the show thank you well grizz there you have it now we know everything there is to know about forensic psychology, and we are prepared to analyze criminals. Bullshit. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I actually know uh, 100% that I would never want to do that job. How about you? No, I think it would be interesting. I, mean, uh, I like talking to people. I like talking to people, too, but uh, I don't know, man. The justice system's not for me. It's a mess, especially talking to criminals who, like, just killed their entire family. Like the Ed Kempers of the world, you know. Yeah, I think I would find that fascinating. Yeah, I think most people would find that fascinating. But you're just the whole time. How can you really analyze instead of just being like, "Yeah, I wouldn't be able to analyze." I'd be like, <laughs> "You did what?" You're just sitting there going, "What the fuck?" <laughs> Hold on, back up. I gotta record that again. You did. <laughs> you did what? Hold on, I gotta tell my <laughs> wife about this shit. Yeah, I'd. I'd have What'd a you hard do time. with their head? <laughs> I'd have a hard time focusing on that. Uh, but she had a lot of uh, insightful things that I thought were pretty cool. Uh, I especially thought it was interesting how uh, she developed ADHD, which. Yeah, you like that part. Yeah, because I think ADHD is pretty cool. It's problematic, but it's uh, psychologically super, super interesting. I, I mean, I think all mental health in general is fascinating to, to yeah. why we get it to what the hell it does to us and how we can't control it. I mean. Yeah, I'll take it all. Absolutely. Uh, but if you guys at home lis and listening uh, and watching on YouTube enjoyed that, let us know in the comments or like and subscribe. Thank you again for listening to Beautiful Bastards. New episodes every Monday. Remember to like and subscribe. One side of me says I'd like to talk to her. The other side of me says I wonder what her head would look like on a stick. And in the words of the late Charles Manson, I'm Jesus Christ. Whether you want to accept it or not, I don't care.